I'm going to invite us to prayer as I usually do, but I'm going to pray a special prayer today to precede this sermon. Today, this week, um, marks the second anniversary of the coronavirus beginning in the United States. Worldwide, we have lost six million people. So I'm going to pray about that, and then I'll invite us into prayer for the sermon. Let us pray. O God, giver of life and sustainer of health, for more than two years, your people have been afflicted by the COVID-19 pandemic. We have lost more than six million of our siblings around the world. Our healthcare workers have been traumatized as hospitals fill beyond capacity. Anti-vaccine misinformation has threatened us all, and we have seen, seen children placed on ventilators in record, record numbers. Yet through it all, O oh God, you have been faithful and present with us. You bring light in the darkness and renewed hope in times of despair. We gather before you now to lift up our nation's children, and in fact, the children of the world, our healthcare workers, to give thanks for the gift of vaccines and for improving Omicron numbers, and to ask you for guidance for all leaders and public officials. We pray to you, Creator God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus Christ, that you will turn your face to us again and restore us. And now, O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts give you honor and grace and glory. Amen. <clears throat> Just this week, Stephanie and I decided to um, go back to watching what had been one of our favorite uh, TV series, uh, though it hadn't produced anything during the pandemic lockdown, um, but it's back. It's called The Amazing Race. <laughs> oh, my word, I had forgotten how much I love it <laughs> and how exciting it is. I mean, you know what it is. It's, it's an American adventure reality show, 11 to 12 teams of two race all around the world, and the race is split into legs, and this year they're in London. <laughs> anyway, um, with each leg requiring teams to deduce clues and navigate through cities and countrysides where they don't, sometimes don't even know the language and or can understand it, which might be the case in London, uh, and uh, they can't read maps and road signs if it's in a different language, you know? And teams are progressively eliminated at the end of most legs by coming in last to the final stop that they call the rest stop. The first team that arrives at the rest stop wins prizes and other benefits for the next day's competition. Ultimately, two or three of these couples that are not eliminated compete in the final round. We're a long way from that right now. The final round and the couple to finish first wins a million dollars. Now, every day of the competition is concerned with this question. How do we get there from here? Right? Of course, that might be a good metaphor for our journey of faith, right? How 
do we get there from here? How do we get to the place of entering deep and lasting relationship with God? How do we get to the place of lasting and meaningful relationships with others? How do we get to the place of being able to make a difference in our world, particularly in the global climate? How do we get there from here? And I think our psalm today has a lot to tell us about that. I want to tell you about this psalm uh, when I was in college at University of North Texas, although in that day it was called North Texas State University. Um, I joined a sorority, Alpha Delta Pi, and uh, part of our <laughs> ritual was that the pledges had to memorize the 15th Psalm. So I know the Psalm well, although I know it in the King James Version, because that was what we were required to memorize. So what we heard today was the Common English Bible translation, which is a new translation out by the National Council of Churches. And um, anyway, so we got a more contemporary hearing, and I think it rests on the ears a little better. We can understand it a little better by their translation. Now, the first thing I want to note to you in this translation is that the scripture talks about uh, who can enter your tent, O oh God. Who could enter your tent? And who could come up and dwell on your holy hill? I mean, so just so we can all be clear and on the same page about this, the tent is a reference to the temple. And the hill is a re reference to the Temple Mount. And it harkens back to the day when, um, in the wilderness era, where the people of Israel carried the tabernacle around with them. The, the presence of God moved with the people, right? And then uh, Solomon built the great temple, and all of a sudden, God was located. Now, that's a little odd because um, truly, I think, the people of Israel understood that God was something beyond the walls of the temple or the tabernacle, but it was a very holy space for them. And the, the, the hill represents the Temple Mount. If, if you know anything about Jerusalem, it was built a city built on a hill. I mean, it, it is the high point that you can see. In fact, throughout scripture, we hear people making references, the, the writers make references to going up to Jerusalem. It's an actual physical movement to go up to Jerusalem. <clears throat> so now that we're all on the same page about that, let me, um, well, because, you know, who knew that that's what it meant? <laughs> now, while we don't actually have any descriptions of what, I mean, we have descriptions and, and drawings of the how the temple was all laid out and and all of that, and in fact, how many cubits and everything else. I mean, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible and you get to Numbers and Leviticus, you're like, oh, uh, because they're talking about all that kind of stuff. But uh, anyway, um, I think what's important is that we don't really have any descriptions of what happens when the pilgrims got to the temple, but we can surmise. So the temple had a gate 
lots of them, but there was a gate by which you entered, right? And there were people who were there making sure that you just didn't walk in. I mean, it's not like our churches, you just walk in. It's not like uh, even the churches like in Rome, you just walk in, there's great artwork on the walls, you just walk in. There were people who were there to make sure that the people who came in met the requirements of coming in. And so for the temple culture of the day, they had to be spiritually clean and physically clean and had to meet requirements to get in the door. But what we know about this psalm is that it's an entrance psalm. And so what scholars believe about it is that it was a responsive liturgy that took place between the people waiting at the gate and the pilgrims seeking entrance. And so the pilgrims would come and say, who can dwell in your tent, O God? Who can come to your holy hill, O God? And the response was what we heard today. Those who speak rightly and do justice and honor God and are not wicked and all of that. So the gate person would say, these are the things. These are the things, right? Well, you know, what it sounds like to all of us is, oh man, it's quite a checklist, isn't it? I mean, it's a lot. I mean, it's a whole lot. Just, I'm gonna go back there and tell you how a lot it is. <laughs> so, you know, live free from blame, do what's right, be, speak the truth sincerely, you don't do damage with your talk, you do no harm to a friend or to a neighbor, you don't care for the wicked, but honors those who honor God. We do things even, we keep our promises even when it hurts. We don't lend money with interest. Apologize to any bankers in the, in the <laughs> congregation. <laughs> and who won't accept a bribe against an innocent person. So that's just a lot. And, um, and there's a reason that it's a lot. For the people of the, the, the period of the Psalms, um, it was that they were coming into the very real presence of God. They were expecting to encounter God and to be encountered by God. And so, you know, it was a very serious thing to come into God's presence. It was a very serious thing. I mean, because, you know, um, as the Bible tells it, you know, if you actually see God or hear God's voice, you, I mean, you know, combustible. <laughs> so, you know, so you had to be, you had to, you know, cross your T's and not dot your I's. And so, you know, what we know is that everybody wanted to be that good, and probably not everybody was, because just like us, they want to be good, they want to do the right things, but like Paul, I do the very thing I do not want to do, and the very thing that I want to do, I cannot do, right? So it was serious, and these were things that they took seriously. And the point seems clear that people who come to worship God on the Sabbath or who arrive to worship any other day 
should take these things seriously. And, and the, the part that I actually like and that I want to put an emphasis on is that we're not going to put, um, we're not going to do interest. We're not going to loan people money with interest and we're not going to um, hold things against people. The, 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 the real importance of noting this here is that it was a reminder of the whole law, which was we were to honor. We were to do honor to uh, widows and orphans and strangers, those who were oppressed, those who were marginalized, those who were victimized. This is what that one little line means, that we are to honor those. We're, we're to care for them. You know, I think about the, uh, the loans, you know, that are given out that um, charge 30 and 40% interest to people who are desperate for money. And, and, and so, you know, our denomination works with that and tries to make a difference in that. I think about medical debt. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that our denomination buys up medical debt and then pays it off so that all the interest is wiped out and pays it off so that people who are under oppression for medical debt are suddenly free. And so that's part of what all that means for us. Uh, not exploiting our neighbors, not taking bribes. All of this is to help remind us and the people of that day that this is what we were to do. These are the people we are to care for. And then once they got past this responsive liturgy, it's likely that the person at the gate would say, shalom, peace, enter the temple, right? Can you imagine if we did that here? Oh my God, uh, yeah. Well, we do, we do try to welcome people extravagantly, you know. Um, of course, then this raises a question for us. What does it mean for us today? And I, I said a little bit about that just then. To begin with, and what I really want you to hear, and this is really, really, really important, is that um, not only did this psalm anticipate the encounter of God, but also the transformational act of that encounter. That's what it was designed to do. It's a transformational act to encounter God. And the, you know, the other thing we know is that this wasn't supposed to be, <coughs> excuse me, a checklist of requirements. That's where we go. You know, we hear this list and, <laughs> and it's being read off and you're going, okay, I can do that, I can do, oh, I can't do that. I can do that, I no, can't do that. I mean, you know, we're kind of weighing ourselves to decide if, if we're good enough to check the, so we can get in, right? I mean, because in the development of Christianity, in a lot of cases, it's become about getting in, right? Who's in, who's out? That's not this. Sounds like that to our ears. What it is about is really this encounter with God and the implications for our personal character and our conduct. And those of us who are Christians, this shouldn't come as a surprise. <coughs> I 
I need a sip of water. Um, for the <coughs> for those hearing, uh, for those of us who follow in the way of Jesus, thank you. Oh no, I don't, okay. I don't want to drink out of a big bottle. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, back well, okay, come back to me. Come back to me. So, as Christians, we regularly in worship affirm that we are encountering God. We're encountering God in community. We're encountering God in each other. We're encountering God in the vista that surrounds us. We're encountering God in the elements of worship, a flame lit, the sacraments that we partake in. We are reminded in, in this of an encounter of God. And if we're really in tune, we open our hearts to this encounter, which can be transformative. Not all the time, maybe not every Sunday, but in many ways can work on us and be transformative. It is interesting to note, however, that while this is an entrance psalm and is all, you know, all about getting into the temple, it doesn't say anything about being in the temple. It doesn't have anything to say about being in the temple and worshiping God, so it might better be called an exit psalm, or maybe an exit strategy. So you come into the worship of God, but then you step out into the world. And so then this, all of this doesn't become a checklist. It becomes about a way of being in the world. It becomes about how we're going to see the world. It becomes about how we're going to encounter God in the world. It becomes about how we're going to encounter God in each other and others and even our enemies, Jesus says, right? So, I know still it feels a little overwhelming, all the list of things, and still remains this question, so okay, how do I get from here to there? From where I am here. How do I get there from where I am here? <clears throat> so, gosh, I have to tell you that Diana Butler Bass, who is a uh, established and pretty profound religious historian, and I really like her books and, and things, but she writes a weekly blog. And this week, what she wrote really sort of blew me out of the water, and I, I got to thinking about it in terms of this being in the world kind of thing. So she talked about all the research being done now on <coughs> different faiths and their polity, which is a 10-cent church word that means structure and governance and organization, right? And so she talked about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. And I didn't know this until I started reading her blogs, but so it turns out that some of what's happening there is that this is a religious war. So, <clears throat> Russia 
and Ukraine both operate in a setting not like ours. There is no separation of church and state, okay? It's all one, okay? And um, what happens in this is that the Russian Orthodox Church answers to the patriarch of Moscow and what she calls the neo-Tsar Putin. And they're all one thing, okay? On the other hand, Ukraine responds, is a, uh, a Greek Orthodox church that responds to the patriarch of uh, Constantinople. And they're two very different ways of being in the world, okay? The Russian Orthodox Church is a highly um, hierarchical church in the shape of a pyramid. Okay? So leadership at the top, everything comes down. On the other hand, the people who respond to the patriarch of Constantinople, theirs is a open system. And how you know? Because Ukraine elected a Jewish president. If they were really hierarchical in the Christian tradition, they would have elected a Christian. But they have this more open system. I'm going to get back to Psalm 15 in a minute, but um, <clears throat> I just don't want you to get distracted before I get there. So like all pyramid structures, power, wealth are concentrated in the hands of the few, and the goal is domination of both those in the lower ranks of the structure Descent doesn't matter, and any potential competitors or rivals are eliminated. In a open system, a more democratic, less hierarchical, is not a pyramid of dominance. Instead, there's an attempt to move toward a national identity that is geographically communal, broadly Christian, but not exclusionary, and not bound by doctrines of baptism or other doctrines like that. So what's happened in Ukraine is that they've been experimenting with new, less uh, exclusive forms of orthodoxy with an eye toward pluralism, equality, and global responsibility. And, and in an incomplete and sometimes tentative project, to be certain, it is still a promising one, right? Oh, of course we would think that as citizens of the United States. But listen to this. This is really what's important. In short, a communion paradigm, you hear this? Or a covenant community yields a deeper satisfaction than the desire for gain and protection. And what does this have to do with Psalm 15? a psalm that I imagine that Jesus knew perfectly, shows us how to cultivate a culture of communion and covenant. So when Jesus entering Jerusalem weeps over the city and doesn't condemn them, but opens his arms like a mother hen and chooses to see the people there as chicks that he wants to gather up, which we can say is how he sees us. He is both vulnerable and transformative. 
and vulnerable, vulnerable. Vulnerable, in any way, uh, y'all know what I'm saying, that uh, is one of the most powerful positions in the world. And that's why Christianity has changed the world in many ways. Or we might say today, maybe it hasn't. So Jesus will model this again and again from this point in Jerusalem. He will then model it again at a table where he establishes equality and a covenant of love. And he will again offer it this vulnerability from the cross where he doesn't condemn but forgives. This is amazing. And so these two models are, fi are fighting with each other all over the world right now, even in our own country. And so we have to step back and say, okay, how am I going to help with this? So when people join our church, <clears throat> we often say, you know, we honor every church, every faith community, every everything that has been your faith home. And we will honor your presence with us until such time as you are called to a new place. Because sooner or later, we're all called to a new place. Um, and then we ask this one last question of people. We say, this is the question of the church. Will you support this part of the body of Christ, the new church, Chiesa Nuova, United Church of Christ, with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, your study, and your witness? And we all say, yes, I will. And maybe we all say, yes, I will, <laughs> because I assure you, we can't do it all. I mean, you know, we, this is like juggling balls. And the great thing about balls is that they bounce. So, you know, you juggle this one and you're doing pretty good with this attendant, you know, presence thing, and then you drop that one and maybe you're doing better with the study thing. I mean, this is how we are to be in the world. But how we are to be in the world is to be people who are open to the possibilities of what Jesus taught us, that loving God with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength and our neighbor as ourselves are the two great commandments. And this is how we are to be in the world. This is how Jesus was in the world. And the Psalm points to that and Jesus points to the God of love who calls us by name, calls us God's own, who offers us life again and again and again. So here's where we begin. Honest to God. That's how we start. By a hard look at ourselves and then a hard look at the world. And taking these lessons that we're learning from Psalm 15 and from Jesus who lived them, we too can become light for the world, hope for the world. The promise of a table of faith, a communal faith, a covenant faith, is that there is a way to get from here to there. The scripture today says, whoever does these things will never stumble. And Jesus said, 
the water that I will give will become in you a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. May it be so. Amen.